turn your Bible to John 18 while you're at it. Sorry about that. Delay on that. And then lesson 32, actually. John 18. And then lesson 32. There's the, the theme, I guess that's what the theme for this morning's lesson is, of course, we're to the point now of the, the garden, Garden of Gethsemane. So we'll be looking at Christ's betrayal, his arrest, and the first couple parts of his trial. And then actually this evening, we'll be finishing, um, basically looking at kind of this morning up to Pilate. And then basically this evening is from Pilate to the end of chapter 19, which is the end of uh, most of chapter 19, which is the crucifixion. A little spoiler for tonight, I sure hope you come back because what we're going to look at this evening is actually we're going to be looking at an article written by a doctor, and it's called The Passion of Christ from a Medical Point of View, literally what someone would go through in crucifixion, what all Jesus physically experienced through his scourging, Gethsemane, everything, written from a medical doctor. So it's actually really interesting um, to look at and just give you a deeper appreciation, I hope, than you've ever had before for what our Lord did for us. So um, I sure hope you uh, are able to be here this evening for that. But this morning, again, um, John 18, and um, let's see, John 18, and then Lesson 32. So we're actually going to read, um, take the time to do that this morning. John 18, we're actually going to read um, chapter 18, we're going to read verse 1, 2, let's see. Verse 28, actually verse 27. We're going to read chapter 18 and then verses 1 to 27. So we'll go out of the room and read those like we normally do. Um, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Cedron, where was a garden, into the which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place where Jesus oftentimes resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests of the Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. And you want to get this next one, Andy? You want to get the next verse this time? Okay. Good. Four. Verse four. Okay. Yep. He stepped forward, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? As soon as then, as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backwards and fell on the ground. Then asked he them again whom seek ye, and they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let them just go their way. As he said, it will be fulfilled, which he spoke of them, which thou gavest me, have I lost the So we're reading through John 18, the first verses 1 to 27 here. I am uh, get ready to read verse 10. It says, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, and smote the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into thy sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, 
Shall I not drink it? Then the band and the captain of the and the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him. And led him away to Annas first, and he was the father in law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter, following Jesus, and several of the other disciples, that disciple was moved unto the high priest and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door without, then went out that other disciple, which was known unto the high priest, and spake unto her, that kept the door, and brought in Peter. Then saith the damsel that kept the door unto Peter, Art not thou also one of this man's disciples? He saith, I am not. And the servants and the officers stood near who had made a cold, who had made a fire of coals for his coals. They warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed themselves. And the high priest that asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whither the Jews always resort. And in secret have I said nothing. Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I said. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers that stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Jesus answered him, If I spoke an evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? Now Annas had sent him bound unto Caiaphas the high priest. And Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. They said there, uh, therefore unto him, Art not thou also one of his disciples? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest and his kinsmen, whose ear <clears throat> Peter cut off, said, Did not I see thee in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, immediately the cock crew. Yep. So that's what we'll read up to for today, because that's kind of where the lesson kind of hits and stops at this point. Um, so again, as I kind of gave just a little intro, I don't think everybody was in here yet. So again, a little different today. You know, this morning we're going to be looking at um, what we've read so far, again, is Christ's betrayal, his arrest, and then his first part of his trials, because he had multiple ones. Um, so we're going to be reading up to pretty much to right where we just stopped there, with ending with Peter and his denial. And then actually this evening, in the evening service, we're going to be doing the next lesson, which is basically the trial before Pilate and then the crucifixion. And again, throwing this out there as a tidbit, hopefully you come back this evening, because we're actually going to be looking at um, an article by a medical doctor, uh, The Passion of Christ from a Medical Point of View, actually written by a doctor of like what someone would actually physically go through in crucifixion. It's actually really interesting. Hopefully it just gives you a deeper appreciation for what the Lord did for us. But getting back to here, buddy, remember what we had finished looking at last week? We look at last week. It's Christ's intercessory prayer, his high priestly prayer back in chapter 17, as, um, as, we, as it's kind of called and looked at that. So Jesus, 
after finishing, again, his high priestly prayer, some think it might have actually been in the temple itself, again here, so that's kind of where this starts from. Of course, they would, disciples would then follow him you know, down, down the hillside from the temple to the bottom, that ravine, this is called the Kidron Valley, the brook Cedron, as it's called in scripture there. There would be a small brook that would sometimes be there during the rainy season, right there, um, the eastern side of Jerusalem here up to the Mount of Olives. Garden of Gethsemane is here, Mount of Olives, Bethphage, Bethany. Of course, this is all Jerusalem and the temple and everything here. This is interesting. Here's actually a picture of the Kidron Valley. This is actually looking south. So actually, the, um, this is actually the Mount of Olives actually up over here because you're looking the opposite direction. So this is actually the Mount of Olives over here. And then this is the base of Mount Moriah. Temple's actually back up there or what used to be the temple. It's back up there in that direction. So in the spring, of course, that brook would often swell with runoff from melting snow you know, from the mountains in the north. Anybody remember what Kidron means? Looked at this a couple weeks ago during a pastor's sermon. It means cedars, which has to do with the famous cedar forest, of course, from Lebanon up in the north, which that's really interesting with the Passover and everything with cedar and everything. Really interesting. So again, so on the other side of Kidron Valley is was an olive orchard or a garden, as it's called in scripture, <coughs> known as Gethsemane. But do you know what the name Gethsemane means? It's also interesting. Term of everything. An olive press, where olives were pressed. It's also where our Lord was pressed in prayer, was it not? It was a favorite resting place of the Lord. He spent many nights there. Because again, you see in Scripture, in the garden in which you entered, verse 2, And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. So again, I think this is a modern day kind of picture of what that would look like. With the Garden of Gethsemane, you can uh, see up here, this is actually the, Temple Mount, the Eastern Gate, as it's called, to be up there. So you're actually looking west in this picture right there. So again, think of the time, probably a little after midnight at this point. Night air would have been chilly because they had to build a fire later. You know, the, the brook, the f scent of flowers, you think just veiled the awful event that was going to happen soon. You know, the disciples were getting sleepy. You know, and obviously assumed that the Lord would be spending the night there, like he usually did in a quiet place. But of course, John doesn't record it, but the other Gospels do you know what would happen after this. Anybody, what would happen when they would you know, get to the garden and what would they do? Jesus would set the town, well, nine, set the nine over here, and then he would go a little further in with three. Anybody know who those would have been? Then Peter, James, and John, his inner circle there. And he would ask them to do what? To pray. He would stop, tell them to rest, and he took Peter, James, and John further into the garden with him to remain with him and pray. And then what did he do? He went even a little further still and would pray in that. So what would happen after that? Did he, uh, he prayed for a while, agonizing in prayer it talks about. And then he came back, and what did he find? Find him sleeping. 
And could it's not that watch one hour? That happened three times in Scripture. He would come back and find them sleeping three times. And then the third time is when he would tell them, sleep on, it's ready. The time's now here. He was no very well aware of what was going to happen. You know, his disciples, very, you think about this, tired and confused, they just succumb to sleep. It's interesting that there's two gardens that are prominent in Scripture, isn't it? What's the first one? Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden is where Satan began the battle of the ages by entering that garden to tempt Eve and thereby attack the Lord. Role reversal in this one. It was the Lord entering this garden to begin, not to hide, but to conquer. He entered this one to begin the final defeat of Satan here. Because he knew that Judas was on his way already. You know, they did, he didn't like get out of Jerusalem and start running down the road. They went here, and he went there to pray. He went there, and he fought his own. You can see, again, just the humanity and the deity of the Lord and everything. But, of course, you see his humanity in the sense of, no, if it be possible, no, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou will be done. And he won that battle. And he was ready then to face it in public because it already had been won in private, in prayer before God. So the drama kind of this night is kind of, we're going to kind of look at it in four acts this morning. We're going to look at the first three this morning and then the last one tonight. First one is his betrayal and arrest here. Second is the trials of Christ before Caiaphas, Annas, and the Sanhedrin. And then Act 3 is Peter's denial. Act 4, again, we'll look at that tonight, is actually Pilate's trial of Christ. So we don't really, again, we kind of just talked through the, his agony and everything in the Garden of Gethsemane. We'll actually go back to that and look at a little bit of that from the medical point of view tonight. But we won't do that for time's sake right now. So we're kind of going to jump right to his betrayal and arrest right here. So his agony in Gethsemane had barely ended you know, when Judas arrives with a great multitude. You can see it here in, um, in verse 3. They'd come probably from the eastern gate of Jerusalem and they were approaching the garden here. You know, sometimes we're tempted to think that you know, that group is like you know, 10, 15 guys, you know, soldiers and stuff like that. But that Greek word that John uses refers to a Roman cohort which could range from 200 to 1,000 soldiers. They didn't want them to get away from them this time. You know, in front of these several hundred soldiers were obviously the Levitical policemen from the temple, and behind them would have been the chief priests and the Sanhedrin and people in that. It says they were, they didn't come just to look for them and say hi, right? They came with, thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. They were a formidable body intent on arresting him. Judas is leading him. Imagine what the other disciples would have thought at that point. But you imagine what Jesus thought at that point. 
No, it's like as though he's rushing ahead, no, to warn Christ, no, to warn him of what's getting ready to happen, you know, like he's still like trying to protect him and everything here, you know. No, master, master. It says then he kisses him. And that was the sign that he'd already told him ahead that, again, you think about it, it's dark. Torchlight gives you light, but in the midst of a garden and trees and everywhere, it'd still be hard to see. So that's why it's who I kiss. That's him. Don't let him go. You know, that later that night, you know, Christ's face would be marred and scarred in a lot of ways. Bloody sweat, bruised with blows, spat upon, rent with thorns, but nothing probably pierced his heart like the kisses of blasphemy of Judas here. Because you see what he says. Judas, betrayest thou the son of man with a kiss. I think that's actually in the other Gospels. Does specifically say that here? Jesus asks him. It's interesting here, getting to it, the question comes up of who captures who. Because, you know, you see the soldiers coming to conquer and arrest him, but really they're the ones who get vanquished here. Because look at verses 4 to 6. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. And as soon, as, as soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. You know, it says, of course, the Lord, knowing that the multitude you know, had arrived to arrest him here, he didn't try to hide. He steps out of the darkness and issues a question, whom seek ye? You think about it, these guys probably caught off guard by the sudden appearance of this guy, whom they expected to probably have to hunt down like an animal in the garden. Call out, Jesus of Nazareth, that's who we're looking for. Probably not the least suspecting that the stranger who that they addressed was that's who it was. Without blinking an eye, he answers, I am he. At that point, they were probably so startled at the answer to that. You see them just like reel back, they're just like stepping on one another, falling over their clothes, their weapons. It probably would have been quite a sight to see these trained soldiers like falling around, bumbling around like a bunch of idiots, you know, scared. But you think about that. There is obviously something very extraordinarily powerful in the voice and presence of Christ. Because you think back to John chapter 2, when he did something. Anybody remember? It wasn't been Lazarus, but obviously. Remember back to the first time, the very beginning of his ministry in John chapter 2, when he cleared the temple, one man by himself against the whole, basically whole Jewish system kind of there. You think about, you know, those hardened Jewish leaders and people, they ran in terror from him. When he overturned the tables, drove out the animals, make that my father's house and house of merchandise. So the fact of the matter is, instead of catching Christ, he caught them right here. Again, think about how ridiculous that probably looked as they lay it on a heap in the ground, probably bent over. It's interesting. Jesus bent over that poor heap of sinful humanity, and once more, perhaps with a look of amusement, asks again, whom seek ye? 
again. They're probably trying to regain their composure kind of at this point. Jesus of Nazareth, he replied. Again, he answers, I am he. His questioning them a second time compelled them to see that they were not the conquerors or the captors in this case. Rather, he was surrendering himself voluntarily. Because you interestingly, even what he says, actually, if you look in verse um, 8, Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. Again, referring to his disciples in that place there. He was clearly the master of the situation. Again, you kind of remember, we've looked at this many times in our study here in John's gospel, but Christ knows statements that no man taketh, paraphrasing, no man taketh my life from me, but I give it, I lay it down, and I have power to take it again. And as he lay it down, he would take it again, thereby foreshadowing his resurrection. So we see he captures the enemy, but he also protects his disciples here. You know, even in this moment of apparent danger, his first concern was for his poor, cowardly disciples. <laughs> Let these go their way, he demanded. So you think back to John 17, he not only had prayed for the keeping of their and our souls back in John 17, but he also showed his determination to keep their and our lives there. Shows he's just as concerned about our physical welfare is our spiritual but you see that in contrast to Christ's defense of his disciples to their attempt to defend him so what was Peter a fisherman doing carrying a sword did he think that he could really defend God did he suspect trouble what do you think it's interesting you even see back I think it's in Luke's gospel I think where they said, Lord, we have two swords. And he says, that's enough. It's interesting. So do they suspect trouble? I don't know. Kind of, just think about it. But you know, did he really think he could defend him? That he could defend God? Think about that. So whatever Peter's reasoning and carrying a sword, and again, Scripture doesn't really give us a specific answer to that question, he apparently thought that the Lord needed help and that he could provide it. Of course, nothing could have been further from the truth. Now, of course, Peter's attempt at a defense of Christ obviously was very pitiful at best here. Again, which one might expect from a fisherman untrained in the use of weapons carrying a sword. He managed only to cut off the guy's right ear. But it's interesting, John doesn't record it, but what happened actually right after that? It's actually Luke's gospel. <coughs> Jesus actually healed it, actually took the man's ear and healed it and then rebuked Peter for relying on fleshly methods. Note that he didn't rebuke him for his poor aim, but for thinking that the weapons of the world would be effective in the spiritual battle that was occurring. Weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. It's interesting. This scene also shows us the difference of someone who's been bathed in prayer and someone who's been asleep. Because they hadn't remained awake and in prayer for their master, they were very blinded and bewildered by the sudden appearance of the arresting band. Because what did he tell them? Watch and pray, 
lest ye enter not into temptation. Spirit truly is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus probably saved Peter's life by healing Malchus and rebuking him so quickly because, you know, the soldiers, they would have made very quick work of him. <laughs> Think about that. If Christ hadn't intervened right here. So again, how often the Lord saves us from our stumbling and bumbling attempts and things. And how often we could avoid making such mistakes if we would only watch and pray instead of sleeping spiritually. It's a challenge to us. How many times we sleep and we should pray? Not only physically, but in spiritual situations too. So that's act one is the betrayal and arrest of Christ. Act two is the trial before Annas, Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin here. It's interesting. Annas is mentioned. You might have seen his name before in Scripture. But the process of Christ's trial would occur actually at three different times between midnight or maybe a little thereafter and about 3 a.m. So again, this is the dead of night when this is occurring. First, you see in verse 13, they would lead him, oops, bound, led him away to Annas first. But who is Annas? What does it say specifically? Father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest the same year. Again, Caiaphas is the high priest. Annas is actually his father-in-law. So this picture actually shows the top of the steep steps leading up from the Tyropian Valley in Jerusalem toward the upper city of Jerusalem, which actually, getting back to it here, again, probably about here. This is kind of uh, the city of David, as it was called. Mount Zion, kind of more the wealthy. You can kind of see the size of the houses is a little bit bigger than the ones over here. So again, probably up around here. So think about these steps, again, kind of showed a picture of that, kind of excavated today. Probably the very steps that the Lord walked on, going to on that night. So we see at last they would arrive at Annas' mansion. Again, this picture is one of the many rooms in the high priest's mansion. The remains of that reveal what many archaeologists think was the high priest's house um, in Jerusalem. It's at least 5,000 square feet, pretty big and two to three stories high. The room you're looking at was very, again, once kind of a beautiful, uh, decorated there with frescoes on the, the plastered walls. Floors would have had mosaics all in them, lavish furniture, stone jars. And so Annas. Annas was an old man of 70 who had been the high priest 20 years earlier, um, so before Jesus' ministry. The current high priest was Caiaphas, they're sometimes both called high priests in the context. That's a common thing that actually happened in Scripture. Our son and a father are called the same thing. You see that in the Old Testament, too. Um, but the current high priest was Caiaphas, which was Annas' son-in-law. Because of his great influence, he would have been basically kind of still considered the head of all religious affairs in Jerusalem. It's interesting. He was said to be very rich and that his wealth came from the practice of selling merchandise in the temple. If that was the case, then he probably hated Jesus because he had twice disrupted his business. 
He really had no official position, really. But he obviously had taken a leading role in plotting Christ's arrest. And he obviously still had a lot of great influence in, in Jerusalem and in, um, in the Jews at this point. That's probably why Christ was taken to his house first. So next, you see Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. So the stop at Annas's house, again, kind of see, allowed time for the conspirators to go get the other members of the Sanhedrin. See, messengers would be scouring the city, rousing the Jewish leaders from their beds, and rushing them to a trial here, which had to be finished by daybreak, because they had no idea what the multitudes were going to do when they found out that their popular teacher had been arrested and was in the hands of the unpopular Jewish rulers. Because, of course, they hoped to have him sentenced and in Roman hands by that time, by the time that happened. But there was a catch. It wasn't legal to try a man at night. It would be necessary to hold another court at daybreak. But, of course, that trial would be a mere brief formality, uh, just a rehash of what was about to happen at Caiaphas's house. It's actually interesting. If you look in your book, back on page uh, 73 um, here, Kind of just shows you a the sidebar there, kind of example of the Sanhedrin on that. You can kind of see that there. It kind of was arranged in like a semicircle type with the high priest, the president of the Sanhedrin right in the middle. It would have included 70 members, and then the high priest would make 71, of course, to make an odd number. So there'd be no ties or anything like that. Again, it talks about there was kind of some disagreement over the scope of their authority during Jesus' time. Because, of course, you see here, they didn't have authority to put someone to death, which is why they had to take him to Pilate. But then you also see in the book of Acts, they didn't exactly take him to a Roman to stone Stephen, did they? <laughs> but it could have been absence of the governor. They just took matters into their own hands, and they were just mad enough. They didn't care. So there's still there's some unknowns kind of in that, but you can see here that they um, obviously had to involve the Romans at this point. So again, so if you think back again, Garden of Gethsemane, there's another map in the back of your book that shows probably the route that they probably would have taken all the way back into Jerusalem at this time from the Garden of Gethsemane. Again, Annas' and Caiaphas' house are kind of over here in the, the um, wealthy Mount Zion district of Jerusalem. So again, Crossing the courtyard to Caiaphas's house, they would lead him into a semicircular room. Again, we talked about there of the Sanhedrin there. Around that ark, there'd be 71 members that would seat, sat on benches. And as president of the body, Caiaphas would occupy a throne in the middle of that semicircle. And Jesus would be placed in front of him for um, the trial there. It's interesting. You see in verse 19. First, so the high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples... And of his doctrine. Jesus protects his disciples here, not even mentioning them in his reply. Because it's interesting, he asks them of his disciples in his doctrine here. He basically, and he stings the high priests by stating, Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me. What I have said unto them, behold, they know what I said. Again, once again, you see he's clearly in control of the situation. But you see, a jailer here probably be very unaccustomed to hearing such bold, simple, straightforward speech 
in that place, knowing only the wine of poor criminals offering flatteries, clenches his fist and strikes Jesus in the face. So what was Christ's response to that? Did he lose his temper or his composure? How would you or I probably have responded in that? What right do you think you have to do that? It's not even legal what you're doing. What does he do? No. Christ didn't lose his temper or his composure. Instead, he maintains it, his total control of the situation, and challenges the jailer to give a reason for his vicious assault. Once again, he caught them. They had no answer. For the master of every situation. You look at verse 23. Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? And he probably didn't ask it in a like accusatory type attitude. It's a simple question. It probably never got answered. And although John doesn't record this, nor the members of the Sanhedrin, they're very hard-pressed to find a charge on which to accuse him with. Finally, they would commit subordination. They'd bring in two false witnesses that they would bribe to lie under oath. And they would testify that they heard Jesus say, I will destroy this temple that's made with hands, and within three days I'll build another made without hands. But it's kind of difficult to determine what they really could have made of that statement that they, because he said he's going to rebuild it, you know? Like, what could they really get from it? It says, the high priest, knowing that the accusation would get them nowhere, would then, kind of getting back to John, would spring forward and demand of Jesus, why would he answer nothing? Here. What is it which these witness against thee? It's like he pretended to believe that something of great enormity had been alleged to here, you know. But he gave way to just unseemly excitement because he knew nothing could be founded on it. Isn't that interesting? Kind of makes a big deal out of nothing because they didn't have anything. It's interesting. Put a finger here and then turn back. Let me find it here. Turn back to Isaiah 53, verse 7. And actually keep a finger back in Isaiah. Someone read Isaiah 53, verse 7. Go John. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he opened, openeth not his mouth. What was Jesus' response? to what he said. If you look at, well, actually, you don't, it's actually not recorded in John's. I apologize about that. But in what would happen when Jesus was asked that question, he would merely just look on in silence, answer nothing. This is actually a really interesting statement here, but silence often speaks better than the loudest words against a ridiculous accusation. The high priest knew that he was beaten, so he finally switches, commands Christ to confirm whether he was the Messiah or not. Again, this is kind of not necessarily right in John. You can see this from the other Gospels. This is one of the great moments in the earthly life of Christ. 
because you would very clearly and solemnly basically say, yes, I am. At that point, they would lose it. The high priest would lose his composure, would rent his clothes and say, no, what need have we of any further witnesses? No, you've heard the blasphemy, what do you say? And that's where they would say, away with them. And the men were so enraged that they would lose all composure and dignity here. Where Christ, they'd strike him with their sticks, they'd spit in his face, they would even draw something like a, a sack over his head and hit him and say, prophesy, who smote you? Imagine it. Who's the ones doing this? These aren't just common, ignorant people out. These are the dignified members of the Sanhedrin. The highest Jewish religious council. And in, your, in their behavior, you can see the depths of human nature. Again, keep, that's where he is when this is happening, what they're doing. It says they waited until early morning and then would lead him away to Pilate. And it's interesting. It's possible that Jesus would then spend the rest of this night in a pit used for holding prisoners. In Jerusalem today, you can see a pit that's below Caiaphas's house. And at the top of the pit, there's a hole through which a prisoner would, would be lowered with ropes under his arms. It says the bottom of the pit would, I think Jeremiah, in a quagmire of filth, of mud and human waste, the stench. There'd be a window on the side that would allow a guard to peer in to uh, see if the prisoner was still alive. So if that's the case, he obviously would have been in total darkness, knowing there's but a few hours to live before he'd be hanged on a cross. Modern day people, you can descend into this pit by steps, and you can see crusader crosses on the wall and stuff like that, where crusaders, of course, from the 10th and 11th century thought that it was biblically significant. And you can still see the hole through which he'd be lowered and the window through which the guard was able to watch. You still see that today. Keep your finger here. Turn to Psalm 88. Think about what we just said as we look at this psalm. Psalm 88. O Lord God of my salvation, I have cried day and night before thee. Let my prayer come before thee, incline thine ear unto my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draweth nigh, draweth nigh unto the grave. I am counted with them that go down into the pit. I am as a man that hath no strength. Free among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, whom thou rememberest no more, and they are cut off from thy hand. Thou hast laid me in the lowest pit, in the darkness, in the deeps. Thy wrath lieth hard upon me, and thou hast afflicted me with all thy waves, Selah. Thou hast put away mine acquaintance far from me. Thou hast made me an abomination unto them. I am shut up, and I cannot come forth. Mine eye mourneth by reason of affliction, Lord, I have called daily upon thee. I have stretched out my hands unto thee. Wilt thou show wonders to the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise thee? Selah. Shall thy loving kindness be declared in the grave? Shall thy faithfulness in destruction? 
Shall thy wonders be known in the dark, and thy righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But unto thee have I cried, O Lord, and in the morning shall my prayer prevent me. Lord, why castest thou off my soul? Why hidest thou thy face from me? I am afflicted and ready to die. That's interesting. Ready to die from my youth up. While I suffer thy terrors, I am distracted. Thy fierce wrath goeth over me. Thy terrors have cut me off. They came round about me daily like water. They compassed me about together. Lover and friend hast thou put far from me and mine acquaintance in the darkness. That interesting. Maybe that refers in part to something Christ prayed in that pit. But while he waited in the depths, while he waited for his execution, doesn't say, but that's actually really interesting. Think about that. <laughs> Definitely fits. We don't know that he prayed that. But we know, no, he must have, what have been the heartache been going through him as he knew what was coming the next day in the coming hours after being forsaken by his disciples and his friends. So moving on, we've got to keep moving here. Peter's denial. This is Act 3, of Act 3 of 4. So while the trial is in progress, there's another drama that's unfolding on another stage nearby. And as Jesus is bound in Gethsemane, two of the disciples, of course, Peter and John, most likely, Peter for sure, John most likely, would be rally from their panic, and they would follow at a safe distance, it seems. They'd get, after arriving at Caiaphas's house, John would go forward, because it's interesting if you see... In um, verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. That disciple was known unto the high priest and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door without. Then went out that other disciple, which was known unto the high priest, and spake unto her that kept the door and brought in Peter. So again, the, other, the one disciple was known, having been there before, apparently was acquainted know with the household servants so he got inside with the crowd with John John did but somehow no Peter got left outside here you know when he notices that he then asks the, the young maid at the door to let him in to allow Peter in of course a friendly gesture but Peter might not have been too happy about that of course coming inside reluctantly kind of seems like he probably remained like just inside the gate watching from the shadows you know again he's kind of trapped <laughs> what's he do at this point, again, because he was sleeping when he should have been praying. But he notices the young girl who opened the door watching him closely. What should he do? Did, he didn't dare go, as John did, into the judgment hall. Perhaps he half-wished to be back out in the street. So since it's a cold evening, the soldiers have built a fire in the middle of the courtyard. And he strolls forward, kind of sits down, just kind of tries to blend in, you know, kind of among them begins to warm himself. Again, you, no doubt what the topic of conversation was, you know, probably making jokes and mocking, know the Lord, but he remained silent and didn't dare defend the Lord. You know, sometimes silence isn't golden, it's just plain yellow. So they see the young maid who's been watching him here finally steps forward, kind of probably maliciously says, no, you're one of them. There's a couple different things that are said, you no, know, your accent, your speech. I thought I saw you with him. A couple different things you see in the various Gospels. Again, he probably was floored 
like here. It's probably like as if a mask is just ripped off his face. You know, in a moment of terror, he suddenly realizes that listening to all the jokes without having said a word, he couldn't now speak up and claim to be one of his disciples. So he denied his master in act, or rather inaction. So now he denies him in word. No, I don't know what you're saying, he says. So no one seems to be, no one pursued the issue, it seems, no. So he's still uneasy, maybe he slips away from the fire, maybe goes back to the gate. But then he gets noticed again, no, aren't you one of them? I thought I saw you. This time he's probably angry at this point. He says he flings an oath at her, turns on his heel, probably goes back to the fire, again in the big courtyard, Caiaphas's house here. And now he just loses control. He's, think of just the emotions that are boiling you know, inside of him at this point. And he couldn't keep quiet. So he joins the conversation at the fireside, talking loudly, defiantly. And then the last one is actually really interesting. It was actually a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. And I think it said, didn't I see thee in the garden with him? This time, he just loses it. And he denies the Lord with oaths and curses. So while Peter's in the midst of this outbreak of denial and profanity, the eyes of his tormentors are turned away from him to another object. Jesus, as being condemned by his enemies, is being led out of the hall to the guard room, probably that pit, across the courtyard. Of course, he hears the Galilean accent of his disciple. Turning quickly, he looks in Peter's direction. And at that same moment, Peter turned, and their eyes met. Jesus didn't speak, but who could say what was in his look? That look from Christ made Peter the great man that he became, that look. Because his look wasn't one of anger or bitterness, as it might have been from us. If we had been rejected by someone we thought was a friend, it was the look of a rescuer. So would Peter rush out into the night and commit suicide as Judas had done? Had it been an angry look, he might have. But it contained not a hint of anger. Instead, it probably showed pain and disappointment. But a deeper look of love and compassion. And Peter now saw the kind of Lord that he denied. And as a result, he would sob bitterly and run out, somehow get out get to the gate and find his way out and says, wept bitterly. So would to God that we could look into those same eyes and see both our life and that of our Savior. Look at those suffering, loving eyes. Can you deny that kind of Lord? Can we deny that kind of Lord? Can I deny that kind of Lord? So may this lesson challenge our hearts and increase our love to such bounds that we'll be the dedicated Christian that Peter would become. Matt. It's going to leave you at a cliffhanger here because you've got to come back tonight and see how it ends. So we're not going to take time to look at the, uh, the questions and stuff here, but 
hope that you learned some things this morning, maybe that you hadn't seen before. Tonight, I think you will for sure. And some, some things that are really, um, really interesting. And I hope, again, kind of the purpose of this whole study was just we learn about Christ, not just as a historical figure, but who he really is and really was. And you see people's lives changed. You see Peter. His life was changed from this Nicodemus. Joseph. You might hear of those guys again. Even Pilate is actually really interesting here. Actually, on the uh, tonight, we're actually going to look at a little bit of a some information about Pilate himself, which is really interesting. Um, we'll look at that this evening. But um, would that we could see in the scripture the kind of Lord that we have. And that it would challenge us to, again, increase our love as it did to those in that day. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for the lesson today. Thank you for, again, just the fact of your love for us. And I mean, think of Judas, the Peter, of your disciples that swore up and down that they would die for you. And then one would betray you, one would deny you, and the others would run. <laughs> and how often we're like that, too. But the fact that you still love us and you want to use us, help us that that would intensify our desire to serve you, to do for you what a portion of what you've done for us. And I pray for the service to come. Help Pastor as he uh, opens your word, that it would um, fill him with your spirit as he just proclaims your truth to us, that we'd be able to be attentive, be alert, and be able just to, to stay focused on your word and what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen.